This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 17, which can be found on page 876 of the Church Bibles. And we're reading verses 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Thank you, Kirsten. Let me pray as we come to God's word. Our Father, we pray that you would speak to us really clearly from what is a simple and yet uh, profoundly uh, searching and indeed encouraging passage. Help us to really understand it and to be moved by it in our affections for Jesus. And we pray in his name and for his sake. Um, Amen. Now I remember vividly, as if it were yesterday, a Sunday almost exactly 10 years ago, when a music group called the Praise Singers, some of you will remember, uh, began the service in church. And they sang a song entitled, In the Lord I Will Be Ever Thankful. The lyrics of the song are these, In the Lord I will be ever thankful, in the Lord I will rejoice. Look to God, do not be afraid. Lift up your voices, the Lord is near. Lift up your voices, the Lord is near. Three things struck me that day, and I will always remember them. The first recorded in my diary at the time. The circumstances we were facing in church life at the time were difficult. There was uncertainty about our future as a church. And there was, as is typical on any given Sunday, a whole pile of people within the church family who were facing personal uncertainties. That song that day spoke right into our circumstances, so I wrote and remember. It did help us to rejoice, to look to God, to not to be afraid and to lift up our hearts and voices, conscious that the Lord was truly near. As we listened and as a congregation joined in the singing, the biblical truths in that song really did that day dwell in our hearts richly, illuminating, comforting, counselling, as the Spirit of God who indwelt us, uniting us to Christ, ministered powerfully to us. Second thing I remember were the faces of two women who sang in the group, one of whom is still part of the church family, and I won't embarrass her. The other was a person called Patricia Chancellor who came to us for a year with her family from New Zealand. In her life and vividly expressed that day on her face, she radiated genuine thanks and joy in the Lord. And third, the wonderful truth as I reflect on that day, that we can be and are to be and are ever thankful. Now I'll come back to that later. This morning we begin a new subsection in Luke's Gospel. What I want to do is spend The first 10 minutes just navigating us into this new bit of Luke's gospel, really to set up what follows, and then to focus on these 
uh, verses, chapter 17, 11 to 19. So if you have your Bibles open, it will help. And if you look at chapter 17, verse 11, uh, and we will read what uh, people call journey markers in Luke's gospel. So read with me verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and uh, Galilee. And when you get one of these journey markers, it's a signal to us as the reader that there is a new uh, subsection in the narrative. And it's important that we understand that because Luke the writer intends us uh, to see that. Now we're in a big section. The big section goes from 951 through to 1927. And it is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And it all leads forward to what is perhaps the key verse in Luke's gospel, which is in chapter 19, for the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save uh, the lost. So we're in a journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, to the cross. And that journey to Jerusalem with Jesus, 951 through 1927, is divided into three subsections. Let me tell you what they are, uh, in case this is all new to you, and Luke's gospel is new to you, and uh, Luke writes an historical narrative with a purpose to lead us to faith, to grow us in discipleship, to empower us as witnesses to Jesus. Here are the three subsections in this larger narrative, which is Jesus going to the cross. Firstly, 951 to 1321, then 1322 to 1710, and 1711 that we begin today through 1927. Each one marked out with one of these journey uh, markers. Let me tell you the content. Subsection 1, 951 to 1321, all about following Jesus. Now, if you are new to Christian things, interested in investigating Christianity, it's great that week by week there are folks here who are. These verses, 951 to 1321, Jesus teaches us that following him means following a Christ that is cross-bound. In other words, it means a cross-shaped life. And what David prayed for is not abnormal Christianity. It is normal Christianity. For the last 500 years, we have seen that worked out in the eastern part of the globe. Christians facing hostility and pressure. And increasingly, it is coming to the western part of the globe. And we should not think that we are moving into unusual times. We are, in fact, moving into normal times for Christians and the church. It means living a cross-shaped life. Subsection 2, 1322 to 1710, is about who gets into the kingdom of God. And the refrain all the way through it is, strive to enter while you can. Who will enter? Many who are last will be first and the first last. And today we begin subsection 3. The question that sets the agenda in this final subsection as we get to the cross with Jesus is raised by the Pharisees' question. You can see it there in chapter 13, verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. So here we are for the next six or seven weeks in the lead up to Easter, well-timed as Jesus leads us forward in his teaching to Easter. What is the kingdom of God and has it come? So here we are sitting here, has the kingdom of God come? 
That's what we're about. Now, without giving the game away, although I am going to give it away, which is fine, uh, Jesus' answer in this subsection to the question, uh, when the kingdom of God will come, is that it is already here. It is here now, but only in part. So with Jesus, when he first came onto the earth, the kingdom of God broke into this world, and we are still living in that phase. He went back to heaven, the Holy Spirit came. We are living in the age of salvation, the age of witnessing, the age of calling people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But the kingdom of God has broken into this world. It is here now. And what part is here now? Well, the major focus is on salvation for the forgiveness of sins. And what is the not yet dimension that is still to come? Jesus will teach us that through these chapters in Luke. The not yet dimension is Jesus coming again in glory as judge of all people to bring in the new creation. The now and the not yet. The now and the not yet and in the meantime, between the now and the not yet, how are we to live Motivated by the now and waiting for the not yet? The answer is, and Jesus will teach us this, by receiving the salvation Jesus offers now, and as believers and as churches, speaking his message of salvation, waiting and praying, certain in our knowledge that when Jesus comes again, the kingdom of God will come fully and unmissably as Jesus judges the whole world and establishes the new creation. So that's what's ahead over these coming weeks. The kingdom of God has come now. What does that mean? What's now and what's not yet? What's still to come and how are we to live in the meantime? And it is uh, vitally important that we understand these things. Why? Firstly, so that we are absolutely clear that the coming again of Jesus as judge of the whole world is as certain as the first coming of Jesus that we are reading about here in the pages of Luke's gospel, his carefully researched historical narrative. And the return of Jesus can be for any of us an elusive concept. How do we know he will come again? The strongest and most persuasive answer to that is he came then. And so he will come again. And he came then, and he proved to us that he is God, and he said he will come again as judge of the whole world. Now, believing that Jesus will return to judge the whole world, and Christians believe that in mind and heart, believing that is one thing, living in light of it is another. Believing it, living in light of it, changes everything about how we live now. And Luke has been teaching us to journey light to the world, to journey light to the things of this world, not to store up treasures here, but to invest in eternal things to bear fruit. That our focus as Christians is to hold out the word of the gospel so that people become Christians, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, so that when he returns as judge, they will be judged to be forgiven, as we will. 
And so we need to attend to our own salvation and preach the message to others. And of course, it's true for all humanity, and David was praying this. The return of Jesus as judge of the world will bring an end to all sorts and all manner of stuff. It will bring in the new creation for believers, but it will bring justice. Justice is in the hands of God. Whether for global conflicts or in personal dimensions. But there is another important reason that we know what is for now and what is for not yet with respect to the kingdom of God. And it's this. So that we do not overexpect or overstate when we speak to people about Jesus in our evangelism what is ours to have now in Christ. Imagine, for example, if in the eastern part of the world and perhaps increasingly in the west in the decades to come, people were to stand up behind lecterns and churches or in house churches and say that if you suffer for being a Christian, something is wrong with your message. God is not blessing you. God is not helping you. How would that how would that help Christians all over the world facing persecution for their faith? It would shipwreck them. It is not what Jesus said. He said, in this world there will be strife. You will carry a cross. That is the now. The not yet is divine justice and a new creation. It is very important that we understand the now and the not yet so that we do not overexpect or overstate when we speak to people about Jesus. Now that is true in a global situation, perhaps it's true of the church's witness in the world. Is it not also true of our own lives as we suffer? We must understand what Jesus' promises for now. Jay began the membership questions with depending on God's grace. Depending on God's grace for all things is what Jesus promises now. We need to be really clear so that we do not overpromise or overexpect. But now sit up, perk up your ears. I only say these things to you because in preparation, these things cause my ears to perk up. And I sort of say to myself, sitting in my desk, gosh, he didn't realize that. He's also important as we get the right balance between the now and the not yet. That we do not under-expect or underestimate what is ours now in Christ. And it seems to me that that is just as much a danger that we underestimate what is ours now in Christ as we overestimate what is ours now in Christ. One of the hardest things we find to do is to get the balance right. The Bible is our teacher in that respect. 
Now that's what this final subsection in Luke's gospel as we head to the cross is all about. Let's turn to 17, 11 to 19 in the second half of our time. What are we to make of these verses beginning this new subsection? It's uh, relatively simple what is described. Um, it's a new subsection. The new subsection really gets underway in verse, uh, uh, um, uh, verse 20 with the Pharisee's uh, question. Um, in our little section, Jesus is, is, is journeying and he meets these 10 lepers. And uh, the, the lepers are, 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 are healed. And one of the 10 comes back to Jesus with a thankful heart and falls at his feet and praises him with thanksgiving. Now, what is this little section doing here? I've never preached on it before. I've always preached on it as point one of three. I think you studied it in your Bible studies as point one of three, but Roger's given it to me today. And I thank God very much for Roger in lots of ways and for giving me this passage, would indulge us something I'm trying not to do as much as I used to, which is to waggle on the T. So here is divine legitimacy to waggle on the T before driving off in verse 20. It's a pause. It's like an incidental section. Why is it here? To cause us to pause and remember that song in the Lord, I'll be ever thankful. Let me highlight a number of things from the verses. Firstly, flashbacks. Through this little episode, Luke reminds us of things we've already learned. The ten lepers are the kind of people who come into the kingdom. They are outsiders. Luke records, verse 12b, they stood at a distance. Why? Because their infectious disease isolated them. But more than that, they were socially, spiritually considered unclean. The flashback is to remind us of the kind of people that enter the kingdom of God. So, for example... Chapter 13, verse 30, Behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. 14.11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we need to come to terms with the fact as we read the gospel books that the people who come into the kingdom are not the people we expect, and very often not like us as we sit here. Question, but surely salvation is for everyone. It is. Everyone is invited by Jesus to enter through the narrow door into the kingdom and receive salvation. But the door, as we have seen in Luke, is narrow. And those with broad, proud, self-righteous shoulders cannot fit through. Why can't they fit through? Because they will not, they will not, they refuse to. They cannot bring themselves to come to Jesus in absolute humility, abject need and dependence. They cannot bring themselves to do that. They will not have it on Jesus' terms. They will think that Jesus was wrong, at least by the way they live. And they will think that they are saved on their terms, but they are not. You see why? It's so vitally important on Sundays and in our small groups that we study what Jesus actually said. Because it runs so countercultural, so counterintuitive to the way that we live. 
Such who will not stoop their shoulders or drop them low enough in humility to enter through that narrow door are outside the kingdom and outside of salvation. Now, Jesus can wonderfully bring anyone in. He can convict the proudest heart of sin and of righteousness and judgment, but many such refuse. They will not come to terms with their need. They will not enter in. Often I'll speak with Andy up in Charleston, and one of the things Andy will say to me is you minister the gospel in a place like Charleston, in a housing scheme where there is much more perhaps ostensible chaos and uh, difficulty in people's life, Andy will say to me, you never, ever, ever need to work hard to convince people that they need help and that their lives are sinful. And he says to me, what he has to work hard to do is convince people from the Bible that there is a place for them in the kingdom of God, because in every other area of life, there is no place for them. With us, it's the other way around. Our kind of world thinks that there is a place or should be a place or will be a place come what may because relatively speaking, we're doing all right. Where we struggle is drooping our shoulders and thinking we are in need. Jesus really did mean what he said when it is as hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God as it is to push a camel through the head of a needle. It's extraordinarily difficult to do what this man that Jesus healed physically and spiritually, we trust, did. It is extraordinarily difficult to fall on one's face at the foot of a cross and praise God. Flashbacks. Now, second, with Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus' miracles in the Gospels are for two reasons. One, they reveal his identity as God. And just look at this miracle here. Jesus cleansed these ten lepers. Leprosy as an illness has receded almost entirely on the planet today. But in Jesus' day, it was a terrible illness that cut you off from everything and everyone. Physically, spiritually, you were regarded as unclean. And Jesus didn't touch them although he often did touch lepers, he sent them to the priest, ostensibly to say that they had been cured. And of course, they obeyed him. And as they walked along the road, they weren't cured. And suddenly, they discovered that they were. It's extraordinary. Jesus did these things and many other miracles to show us that he is God. But also that his kingdom has broken into the world. They show us that his kingdom has come, and when he lived on the earth, his healing miracles show us they're like a prototype or a picture of what the new creation will be like, where there is no more sickness, mourning, death, or crying, or pain. 
Now, we need to be absolutely clear in this. Jesus did not come to heal us physically. He will do that in the not yet. The now is that he came to heal us spiritually. And if we had time, I could take you all the way through Luke's gospel and show you that that is his emphasis, his priority, his concern for now. Remember this, that everyone Jesus healed physically in the period when he lived on the earth died. Even those he raised from the dead died again. Jesus came to forgive our sins, and his miracles revealed to us his identity and thereby ability to forgive our sins. Now, that did not mean he lacked compassion when he healed the sick. Just think of the Christians in Ukraine. And again, in, in service one, we had folks from Ukraine with us. Is Jesus really saying to the church in Ukraine, don't bring humanitarian and physical aid and feed the hungry and give them shelter? Of course he's not. But the primary responsibility, the primary ministry of Jesus Christ in the now and of his church is to proclaim salvation for the forgiveness of sins and point people to the new creation where Jesus will come as judge of all people, all nations, all rulers, and establish a new creation. Third, and we've drifted onto this, the now of the kingdom is forgiveness and following Jesus. We've seen that all the way through Luke's gospel. The now of the kingdom is forgiveness. That is what we must attend to before we meet Jesus as judge. And having come to terms with our forgiveness and received it through his death on the cross, we are called to follow him, to take up our cross and to suffer for his sake and to go and tell the message of salvation. Now, let me bring back to our mind something I said earlier. If a danger to be avoided, and it is a danger, is over-expecting or overstating what is ours to have now in Christ, then there is also a danger and a very real danger of under-expecting or understating what is ours to have now in Christ. I was in Ireland this past week where the grass is greener. And I was speaking at a conference on knowing the person of the Holy Spirit. Not an easy subject. Talk number one, the title I had was Getting to Know the Person of the Holy Spirit from Creation to Christ. Talk number two, Getting to Know the Person of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. Now, I have no idea that if what I said was helpful to anyone at all. It was to me, though. I just don't think it came out in clear expression and words. But over the course of the month of preparation, I can honestly say that I got to know the person of the Holy Spirit much, much better before I knew the person of the Son and the person of the Father, but not the person of the Holy Spirit as well. 
Now, I had him all in me, but I didn't know him. It is wonderful what we have now, the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us as Christians, all that Christ achieved for us through his death and his resurrection, imparted into us in the person of the Holy Spirit. You and I sit here, and here is the now saved from the penalty for sin, no condemnation, saved from the power of sin. There dwells in you a power, a presence that is greater than the power of the flesh. You are no longer a slave to the flesh, to your sinful bodies, but to the Spirit of Christ who lives in you. You walk in him and he walks in you. And so you can put to death the deeds of the body. The Holy Spirit that indwells us is our helper, our comforter, our advocate, our defense counsel, our voice to say, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit gives us voice to pray. The Holy Spirit is our assurance, our comfort, our guarantee, our deposit, our seal of assurance, our teacher, our sanctifier, the person of the Trinity that causes the Word of God, even as I preach it now, to dwell richly in our minds, our hearts, our wills, our lives, the Holy Spirit that enables us to sing, to gather, and we go on and on and on. Let me encourage you that everything I have just shared is for now. And it's that stuff for now that enables the people that David prayed for in their circumstances which are dire to be ever thankful. They're not ever thankful for their circumstances. They are ever thankful for all that they have now in Christ as they journey through this world with its trials and its struggles. And let's come right close to home. You're sitting here and there is all sorts of stuff in your life in the now that says to you, you cannot, cannot know peace and assurance and joy. You cannot as you think in your circumstances. That is daft. We are not to rejoice in the wrong way in our sufferings. Yes, to rejoice that we participate in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. But Jesus knows when our hearts are pained and sore. We are to rejoice in all that we have now in Christ. That's what he promises us. Now, uh, I'm not often a spontaneous fellow, but such as I have been encouraged by spending all that time getting to know the Holy Spirit in his person. We're going to begin next Sunday night uh, a series of four on getting to know the person of the Holy Spirit. And hopefully I can sort out the clutter by then. Let's pray for that, that we really will get to know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, where does all of this lead us? Fourthly, and as we come to a conclusion, falling on our faces at Jesus' feet, in thanksgiving and praise. One of them, verse 15, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? 
Was no one found to return and give praise to God except the foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. That word made you well is ambiguous. It could equally mean your faith has saved you. And the point that Luke, the writer, and Jesus is making here is, yes, he healed the man physically, but remember why he does that, to show that he is God and to show that the kingdom of God is broken in. That man that he healed of leprosy would have died of something else. The, the real reason that Luke wants to commend him to us as the example is that that man saw in Jesus the giver and the offer of salvation. And we trust and believe that that man came back to Jesus and fell on his knees before him, for he grasped that there was a greater thing than what Jesus had done, even uh, physically. Now, that man is a model disciple to us. And all the way through Locke's gospel, we've seen two reactions to Jesus. There are only two reactions. And a good way to understand this is that there is nothing worse than a neutral watching sport. There's nothing worse than watching sport with a neutral because there's the absence of passion. There is no such thing as a neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ that is either devotion or rejection, devotion or rejection. Jesus never allows us to stand on no man's land, or neutral land. He never allows us to, I was going to say waggle on the tee. Well, he does in a passage like this. He never allows us, though, to not come to a conclusion. There's nothing that Jesus dislikes more than bland, lifeless, loveless religion. Devotion or rejection. To follow Jesus means devotion all in all, all our life, given to him or to take what he offers us bits and pieces and the true gauge is the true gauge is if we have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ like this man here in Luke uh, 17 like the woman in Luke 7 who kind of slinked out from the shadows at that banquet wept on Jesus feet washed his feet with her tears, came to Jesus seeking forgiveness, undone by his mercy, abject in their repentance. Let me ask you if you have been in this place, if you have not been in this place, my question to you and to myself is, are you a true Christian? Here is where we must have been or must get to. The man came back to Jesus and fell on his face and praised God and thanked Jesus. That's conversion. Heartfelt, humble devotion to Jesus. Deeply conscious of our sin and the forgiveness Jesus can only provide. Is that you? Is that me? When I'm away, I often find myself thinking about the church family and praying for different people concerned for them. We've had this big, big season of funerals. Louise, tomorrow, she was a lovely Christian lady. And of course, it matters, 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 matters that you die uh, safe in Jesus Christ with your sins forgiven. Are you in the kingdom? Have you entered through the door? Are you like the woman in Luke 7? Are you like this man here who at some stage in your life, and you know what this is like, who has fallen at the feet of Jesus 
in thanksgiving and praise. Now, to fall at the feet of Jesus in thanksgiving and praise is not like the worship that we attend to anything else in life. It is to fall at the feet of a cross, and it is to fall down because you are undone and humbled and abject in your repentance. And it's only because he lifts up your head and takes you by the hand and says, you are forgiven. Is that how we are? If not, speak to someone. Talk to God in prayer. Get off that no man's land. And finally, to those of us who have been Christians for a long time, perhaps, are we ever thankful? Are we ever thankful? Now, at the end of this sermon, that is not a question to rebuke us. It is not a question to rebuke us. It is an invitation to remember and to meditate on everything we have in Christ now. It is to live in the midst, perhaps, of trying circumstances, as many of us do much of the time, with a liberty, a purpose, and a joy. It is to be looked upon by somebody else and say, I know what's going on in their life, but there is a liberty, there is a purpose, there is a joy, there is a spontaneity, there is a love, there is a radiance that shines out through even the most difficult of physical circumstances. It is to live with liberty, purpose, and joy. And there are moments, and they may be fleeting, when that steals upon us and our face lights up, not outside because we're British, but inside. Our heart misses a beat, and we know we are Christ's. We know we are Christ's, and we know the Holy Spirit is in us, and we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, and we know that Jesus has healed us. And so we find ourselves singing, maybe in a prison cell in a country in the Middle East, maybe in a hospital ward, maybe at a funeral, maybe as you sit here in the Lord. I'll be ever thankful. In the Lord I will rejoice. Look to God and do not be afraid. Lift up your voices. The Lord is near. Lift up your voices. The Lord is near. Our Father, we thank you for this passage in Luke's Gospel. A pause for thought, really, where you minister to us and we pray that you will have done so and that we will have listened and heeded what you say. Help us, Lord, to relish all that we have now. For the kingdom of God has broken into this world and into our lives as the Holy Spirit indwells us. And may we have been and still found on our faces before Jesus Christ, praising God and thanking him And may we live as Christians with this great truth stealing upon us that in the Lord I can be ever thankful. I can rejoice. I need not be afraid. For the Lord is near. And thank you that you have brought us into a church family that we can learn to sing these songs not alone, but with others who love us, bonded to us, gathered with us, gifted to us, together as your people. Help us so to sing now and to encourage each other afterwards as we chat here and outside. And all this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.